Hi, I'm Amy Porter, and this is my podcast. My mission is to show people how to empower themselves through music, business, and media. I try to see as clearly as possible how I can help. I showcase the music that I've played and the people I've met along the way. I'm a wife and a stepmom. You might know me as a professor, a performer, a producer, a publisher, a recording artist. I'm the founder of a couple of nonprofits. Welcome in to my Porter Flute Pod. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod and our first episode of Season 4. Today, I'm excited to bring you a lengthy discussion with Adam Workman from Flutistry. He brings common sense with mechanical perspective. We'll talk about instrument repair, insurance, maintenance, gold and silver. Adam is the founder of Flutistry, whose brand promises products and services for your artistic evolution. He founded his company in Boston and has recently joined forces with Tampa Flute Studio to create Flutistry Florida. Since we're talking about repair today, be it an alto flute or a piccolo, a bass flute or your flute, at the professional, intermediate, student or beginner level, the expert repair services at Flutistry Boston will breathe new life into your instrument. In fact, if you're a repair person and would like to work for Flutistry, visit flutistry.com careers to apply today. If you know flutes, you know Flutistry. Co-producing the podcast is Alan J. Tomasetti, and he's with me in the interview. Justine Sedke is our vibe checker, and oh yes, the music from the episode is from my latest YouTube video. It's a fan favorite, Cantabile and Presto by Georges Enescu. The pianist is Christopher Harding. If the keys aren't sealing well on the flute and the flute's in need of repair, this piece is not going to go very well for the flutist. So let's talk shop. Welcome to Porter Flute Pod. We're so glad you're back. I love how you have your name tag on. Adam Workman, welcome to Porter Flute Pod. I'm so happy to be here. It's really an honor. I love what you're doing with this. It's so beautifully done. It's so professional. It's so slick. It's so informational, informative. It's really awesome. So it's exciting for me. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And and I just want to welcome Alan J. Tomasetti to the call, too, because this is really a lot of Alan's work here producing Porter Flute Pod. He has a vision board for me. And we are so excited to have you in our first episode of season four. And we're going to talk shop with you, Adam. We really feel that we can ask the weird, delicate, difficult questions. We really want to keep our instruments in the best shape. We really, you know, sometimes fall in love with our repair person and we don't know why we don't know if it's, (laughs) we don't know if it's the key height or the oil. It's just so wonderful. So thank you for being with us. We're going to start from the beginning and we're just going to tell everybody that we met as colleagues at the flute convention. And I believe 
um, we might have even sat next to each other uh, at a banquet dinner. Was that correct? The first time? Yes. I proposed to you that night. Yeah, it was really hard for me to turn you down. And it was hella embarrassing for you, I know. But uh... I want everyone to know how your company began in your apartment. And it really began in your heart, didn't it? Well, that's a great way to put it. I've been asked to talk a little bit about entrepreneurship stuff. You know, I don't know a ton and I'm always still learning, but there are definitely some things that I've, I have learned. Um, and one of them is that, you know, the definition of entrepreneurship is, you know, someone who takes risk for professional and financial gain, in particular financial gain, it's a financial thing. So there are a lot of entrepreneurs like in the shark tank and all that, that want to go for money. They're looking for the profit. They're looking for the quantity, all of that, making it easy. Um, but I think Amy, like, like you and me, you know, we really found that we had to be entrepreneurs because there was something in our being in our hearts and our spirit that we're recognizing that needs to be shared. And so that we feel compelled to, to share and, and to share in the joy and communion that comes with working with the people that appreciate what you love to do. And, um, you know, that was basically the, the acknowledgement that I had skills and experience that were valuable to the people that I wanted to support. And I had to find a way to make that something that I could do so that I could sleep at night and feel great about going to work in the morning. And it's just been really, truly an evolution. You know, we started in my apartment. I was originally, I say we, it's like, you know, as my stepfather always says, who's we, you know, you and the turd in your pocket. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> um, so it was really just me at the time. Um, and I started it in my apartment in Boston. I had been working in corporate America. You know, I played flute. I studied flute. My first flute teacher was a flute maker, Jonathan Landell. I went on to Boston University, studied with some really wonderful teachers, Marion Gadigian and Linda Toot, Jacques Zone, spent a year with Jim Walker in there and graduated and was playing and, and teaching in Boston and had a problem with TMJ and always worked. Um, even while I was in college, I always had a job. So I've been working some temp jobs and ended up in corporate America, where I worked for 10 years doing all sorts of different things from administration to project management. Um, to customer support, clinical support, worked for a biotech company. Um, and all of that experience and my love of the flute kind of was going on at the same time as my TMJ. And I decided I can't play right now because I'm in so much pain physically. Um, but what I can do is help others get their voices out. Not unlike what Alan has done with this podcast and with helping you all the way from Facebook way back when and, and all of those things. You know, that's what I did. I did it for Paula Robeson. I did it for Stephen Finley. I did it for Marianne uh, Gadigian. I, you know, I did that kind of work behind the scenes after hours and things. And all of that ended up merging with a job opportunity at Haynes Flutes. And I consulted with Haynes and then worked with Haynes. And I was part of the team that, um, you know, helped create and design that the Haynes flute that, that you play now, which, you know, we call in the industry that the Renaissance at, at Haynes, everything from materials to mechanisms, to scale, to pads, to crowns, to new head joint styles, the, the Piedmont. I was there for the development of the Piedmont cut and the end cut, really just an incredible experience. But 
as much as I loved working at Hanes, and I thought when I got the job that it would be the job for my career, right? Like, this is it. This is the rest of my life. I'm excited about this. But then something really happened that would have happened at any flute makers, actually. And that's that at the end of every month, I felt it was my job responsibility to move as many units, quote unquote, as I could. That was, that was really my job was to sell flutes for Hanes. And so there was a lot of other work going on there too, but that was one of the primary ones. And the thing is, is that Hanes is a wonderful brand. It's world-class. You, you, it doesn't get better than Hanes. It just gets different, right? Um, and that's a really important thing to remember. And I realized that because here I was working, you know, my, my joy and excitement in that job came from helping people find a great instrument. And I was always very disappointed when I, Haynes just didn't work for them for whatever reason. Um, maybe it was a head joint cut thing. Maybe it was a budget thing. Maybe, you know, whatever the things may have been, but we had nothing to, to help them. And so I realized I would have been un unhappy at any flute makers in that role. Uh, and then what I really wanted to do was not be the seller's agent, like in real estate, which is what I had been doing at Haynes, where I was representing a brand selling a product. And actually, coincidentally, I left Haynes. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I just knew I was unhappy. I was working back at uh, one of the biotech companies um, doing project management, and I started taking real estate courses. And I got my real estate license in Boston. And while I was doing that course, we had the whole session about buyer's agency and seller's agency. And I realized that the flute industry is largely comprised of seller's agents. And those are the industry experts that our community is hearing from as the experts. Um, but they all have an agenda, which is to buy a product, their product. And, and that's the name of the game. That's what business is. So I appreciate that. But I really wanted to focus our business on being the buyer's agent and actually help artists of all levels, whether you're just starting the flute, you're still an artist of the flute, um, all the way up to the, the top of the top superstars like yourself. I really wanted to be able to help people uh, and, and live in the joy of that experience. So I started by just helping people with repair. Um, I had some repair experience, obviously, from my industry experience, and I went ahead and got all my full certifications just to check those boxes from uh, Jonathan Landell, my former teacher, and from David Straubinger and his son, Joel, and all sorts of other trainings that I've done, um, and great, great repair mentors that I've been so fortunate and blessed to be able to work with. And I started working on, on people's flutes in downtown Boston, right on the same block as Boston Conservatory and Berkeley College of Music and New England Conservatory and all of that stuff. You know, I mean, you've come and spent time there at our shop and in that neighborhood. And, um, and it's a really vibrant flute community there. And I found there was an enormous need. Um, and so I just started repairing instruments in my apartment. It was a little bit difficult to do that because it's a one bedroom apartment, but I, decided to put up a, a temporary wall and create a kind of flex space, like an office space. And that was flutistry, it was like an eight by nine room. And we stacked things all the way to the ceiling. You know, re I remember working on flutes. I had so many flutes to repair. And what was happening was some people would come for repair and then say, oh, I need a, I need a loaner flute, uh, which is not something that most repair folks will do or are able to do. 
or I'm actually looking for this for a head joint or whatever, you know, can you get stuff from the makers? You know, and I, I was like, oh, I can go out to the makers because, you know, when you're a student downtown Boston during the week, you can't, you don't have a car, first off, you can't drive out to the makers, which is the closest one is like 30 minutes away with no traffic. And the furthest one away with traffic is almost two hours. So students weren't going out there. And I thought it was really crazy that we could be in Boston, Massachusetts, the global capital epicenter of flute making, the Mecca of flute making. And students, great flutists, students in Boston or anyone in Boston that wanted to shop for flute would have to get on a train and go out of town and try the flute somewhere else or get flutes sent in. Um, and I knew how easy it was because I had worked at the makers and I had relationships with all of them. And so I actually had a Fiat, I had one of those little Fiats in the early days. And my first clients were, I remember I did a weekend and you'll love this. I did a weekend with three flutists from New England Conservatory. They were students of Paula at the time. They were all friends. And we piled into my little Fiat and they were um, Kate Lemon very talented flutist and world-renowned photographer, family photography, and used, used to do wonderful headshots. All of our flutistry team photos are from Kate. She's the one who first bought a flute from flutistry. And then Erica Boyson was in the car. Dr. Erica Boyson now was in the car. That's when she got her Haynes Fusion flute with the gold head joint. And Rich Davis, who went on to study at Colburn, recently played in the uh, Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack out in LA. So we drove around to all the makers in my little Fiat and went back to my apartment and played through flutes there. And Kate Lemon bought the first flute and then uh, Erica did and then Rich did. So one weekend I was able to prove to all the makers that, you know, we can, or not weekend, it was like, cause they're not open on the weekends. It was like a, we went on like a Friday and then we did all the trials on the weekend. So it just started growing from there. And uh, we eventually got our space and, and it's 10, now we're in 11 years later. So much has happened since. That was when flutistry was born. I love that. The name flutistry, I want to point out, a lot of people don't know this. So when I was thinking of the name, I didn't want to name it after myself um, for a couple of reasons. Um, I know why a lot of businesses in the past have done so, because it was the way you found people in the phone book and all of that. And, and I think that's made a lot of sense. Uh, I wanted to do something that would represent the intention. And that really was to celebrate flute and artistry and flute obviously flute, piccolo, alto, bass, all of that stuff, but any flutist and the playing of the flute, but also the making, the artistry of the flute making as well. So it's really a, a celebration of those things. And the name itself I thought of originally because I was trying to think of some of the most pivotal experiences in my flute life that changed things for me. And there are so many now but when I was starting the business, um, one of them in particular was 
I had studied with Linda too, who had studied with Tom Neifanger, and she would talk about Tom Neifanger all the time and, and talk about his philosophy. And like, I was learning the stuff, but then I found out there was a book, Music and the Flute, which we have and carry at Flutistry, which I would study and read and study and read again and again. And then there was a recording I found out later called The Flutistry of Thomas Neifanger. After he passed away, Yale took a bunch of his live recordings from Yale and from Bowdoin and put them out on this double CD set. And I ordered up a copy and I got it and I ran upstairs and put it in and tried to find a track that I, I would recognized right away and it was the the Bach uh, E minor andante so beautiful and it's a you know it's a very stylistic uh you know it's representative of the style of playing at that time but there is such a beautiful core and richness in his sound something that I admire about the great players and great artists Amy like you when I heard it after hearing his teaching kind of in my ear for so long it just I actually started crying when I heard it, because I just, I was like, oh, wow, because I knew the care, and this is something I admire about you. I sit in the audience or I listen to a recording and I know the care and attention to detail that these artists are putting into every last millisecond that we're hearing. And it's such a beautiful thing to me. It's so spectacular. It's so multidimensional. Um, and that was a really pivotal moment for me and it really solidified a lot of my flute playing after that, because I was like, oh, now I can hear from, straight from the horse's mouth how all of the techniques I've been learning go, right? And it, it changed me. So when I was thinking of business names, I was like, what's something that was really you know, important in my life? Flutistry, the flutistry of Thomas Neifanger. And the name resonated with what I wanted our business to represent, and that was it. And um, I designed the logo across the street in the, did we eat at Woody's when you were there? A lot of business meetings have happened in, at Woody's um, and my logo, the first Flutistry logo, um, which is out on all the water bottles and everything. We're down to our last 10 water bottles of the vintage. I need, FB. I need, I need it. I need so mine. we're going to be able to sell them on eBay pretty soon. You, you'll be able to sell them on eBay pretty soon <laughs> for a full $2. You'll be good. It's a moment as a professional to, to look back and say, this is how I've evolved. This is yeah. a huge part of our, it's a huge part of our lives. I don't think a lot of people that aren't involved or responsible for an entrepreneurial activity um, don't all totally have to, you know, you just, you don't know what you don't know. You haven't had the experience and, and, and it's not something that you are told. You feel it as an entrepreneur, you learn it, you know, as you go. And now our new, tagline for your artistic evolution really is what flutistry stands for we stand for the artistic evolution of the flutes that are being made and we stand for the artistic evolution of the players that use them and their understanding of how to find a great match and so that's what it's all about we sell products and services that help you in your evolution <laughs> Well, I know we don't have nuts and bolts on the flute, but let's get down to the nuts and bolts of the maintenance for a flute. The flute yeah. is essentially a machine. Uh, uh, I, I call it an instrument of physics, and it needs to be well-oiled and maintained in order 
to work properly. So what are some of your top tips to keep our instruments in the best shape? And I know for a fact that you said just earlier today that the weather and the temperature can affect our instruments and for sure the condensation in the instruments. So what are some of your top tips to keep our instruments in the best shape? Wow, well, it is it is a, an ever important topic um, and it's really just care care for your instrument. Um, I would say a, a couple of things, these are in no particular order. I will start out by saying, if you count on your instrument, make sure that it's insured. That's really important. We all have done or have people, know people that have done where, oh, I left my flute here on accident or I dropped it in this thing. Or, you know, stuff happens to the flute all the time. But I've found even recently when I have, because I, I have been cooped up, but then I go out to do a couple of events and it's a real, it's a process. I used to be able to pack with my eyes closed and now I'm like, wait a minute, what do I have to bring? And then when I am at the place where I'm juggling a million things, I'm like trying to carry all my bags and pay attention to stuff. It's just, I'm a little bit out of practice with that. And I, I bet you there are flute players that are the same way. So have your instrument insured. It's very important. In terms of keeping the instruments in shape, yeah. You know, the thing about flutes, if it's a decent flute, and most flutes are, you know, most flutes are decent. Um, and that's a, that statement can be read a couple of different ways. Um, but if it's a decent flute, it's not just going to break on you unless there's some sort of damage to it, right? That something happened where it was damaged. It's not really going to break. What it is going to do is slowly fall out of adjustment. Sometimes we notice it. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we notice that we're having a bad tone day and might think it's us and might become a little bit stressed out about it. It's really important to ask yourself, when was my flute last fully serviced? And that's an important distinction. Sometimes we'll ask, when was, when was your flute last worked on, right? And someone say, oh, I, it, someone just looked at it, you know, uh, two months ago. And then the question is, well, was it a paid service or was it just a tweak or what was it? Oh, it was like $30. That's not a full service. A full service is going to be at least, at least these days, at least $300 probably. And that would be what we call a clean oil and adjust annually. The better made flutes, the more expensive flutes are the ones that need them every year. Um, and they need them every year, even if you're not playing them primarily because um, the tolerances are so tight. Those, those high-end flutes, um, and we're talking flutes between probably roughly six to $8,000 all the way up to the top of the top 70, you know, 65, 70, $80,000 flutes. They're made so perfectly and so tightly that there is not space for any built up dust, gummed up old oil. Um, there just isn't space for it in the mechanism. And so what ends up happening is it gets wedged into the most ridiculous places that are the, the least helpful for maintaining the mechanism. And when there is grit and gum and dust stuck in the mechanism, it's stuck in there and your parts are rubbing against each other and that dust and stuff is turning into sandpaper and it's wearing away metal on your flute that cannot be replaced. Um, so that's the first thing. Even if you don't, even if it's playing well, it feels good, you don't have any problems, like the instrument itself is definitely drying up, no question about it. It is just a machine. 
and that oil will dry. And a great way to tell from a tip standpoint is if you ever notice your rollers on your foot joint start to back out, your low B, your low C rollers, if they start to come out, that's a pretty easy fix. You know, you might scratch the, the D sharp on accident. If you can get a screwdriver and try to tighten that screw back in. The next warning sign would be the thumb screw, the steel in the thumb key starting to back out. If that's happening, it's getting even more serious that it's dried up. And if the left-hand one in your C post starts to back out, that is usually a big functional problem and can be a big functional problem and is the really the final warning that you need to have your flute worked on. And the reason that the, those steels backing out, those little screws backing out is the indicator is because when the oil dries up inside those very small parts, so the, the rollers are the smallest, the B is the next smallest, and then the next smallest is that left-hand one steel. Those are the ones that are getting the most exposure because they're so short to the oxygen in the air. And so they're drying out the fastest. So they will be the first ones often to start to back out. And what that's telling you is there's no oil in there or there's some sort of gum or debris in there that's causing friction. And every time I use that key, it's backing the steel out. It's literally grabbing the steel from the inside and rotating it backwards. So yes, you can screw it back in and that's a good quick fix, but make a note in your you know, to-do list that you need to get a repair, a full COA scheduled for that instrument. Another indicator that you might need a COA is that you open your flute case and you take the flute out. And when you pick up the head joint, you notice that the crown is loose, right? Sometimes the crown is loose. And if you have something like a Haynes flute where the crown is really prominent and the beads around the crown are really, there's a lot of friction and it can grab things. Sometimes it's just because the, the crown grabbed the interior of the case and unscrewed it sometimes. But usually the reason a, cork, a crown has moved is because the cork inside has moved. And so when the cork slides, what we call north on the flute towards the top of the head joint, south would be the foot joint, north is the top of the, where the crown is. All head joints on the flute are, are conical. So there's a taper and new corks and fresh corks and corks that are sealing well stop um, in the taper where the taper gets smaller by the crown, they, the friction causes them to stop right about center where it's supposed to be on that, on whatever particular head joint. But as the cork dries out and is subject to, and I'm seeing this here a lot in Florida where it's super, super humid outside in the summer, but you're in a community, unlike in Boston, which is also very humid and very hot in Boston, Massachusetts in the summer. In Florida, most people are in a car to move around. And in Boston, most people are walking around public transportation. But also not every property in Boston has central air cranking full blast all the time. And so there's not, you know, from real estate, you know, one home to another to another in Boston in the summer, there's gonna be different degrees of, of air conditioning. In Florida, Every, it's like a refrigerator no matter where you go. And people have their ACs cranking on full blast as soon as they turn their car on and then they set their flute bag down on the floor of the passenger side, right? Right underneath the vent. And so what we find in Florida is that the corks are you know, shrinking and expanding, shrinking and expanding so much that the cork gets 
basically it gets weakened and it doesn't hold its dimensions anymore. And as it shrinks, it moves north. And as it moves north, now your crown is no longer touching the top of your head joint and it's just rattling on top of the flute. So if you find when you take your head joint out or at any point you're playing, you find that the crown is just loose suddenly, get your head joint stick, your cork stick and check the placement just to make sure. And if it moves just by you easily pulling on the crown or pushing on the crown, you need to at least get your head joint cork replaced. But it is often an indicator that you need a clean oil and adjust because it's probably been more than a year since that cork has been replaced. That's something to really pay attention to. So have your instrument insured, number one. Number two, be aware of some of the warning signs. Flutes don't just break suddenly and then you're like, what do I do? Usually they're giving you warning signs. Oil can, oil can, you know. That's like, right. Did you say something? Oil can what? Oil can? Uh, oh, here it is. Book your appointments in advance because repair has been such a, um, I mean, if I could tell you how long our wait list for repair is right now, it's insane. I mean, it's insane and it's that way everywhere. And so I have two things to say about that. Book your repairs early with whoever it is that you trust. Always make sure you know what a repair person includes in their clean oil and adjust service. You know, we think of a clean oil and adjust as the flute comes back pretty and it gets oiled and it's adjusted. Actually, the definition of clean oil and adjust as it was intended is that what you're really doing is simply cleaning out the old oil from inside the mechanism and any gunk that's inside. It's a functional clean of the instrument, not a make it pretty clean of the instrument. That's the first thing. The second thing is as we clean out that old oil, we put in new oil. That's the oiling part, obviously. And then when we put the flute off, you know, we'll change pads and adjustments and, and shim some things if we need to. But then we put the flute back together and you're adjusting everything to make sure that it's ringing at its fullest potential. And we, we at Flutistry change the head joint part automatically with that. So it's important, some flutists will price shop repair folks. And that makes sense because you know everyone's on a budget, I understand. But it takes a long time to do quality work and it's expensive for the repair people to do that work as well. Um, it takes a lot of time um, and expertise. But uh, some people will price shop for COAs and they'll find a place that's like 195, but they don't know, it says clean oil and adjust, but they find out later that the instrument was not polished at all, wasn't hand polished at all, so it's not particularly clean. The head joint cork wasn't replaced because that particular service provider does not consider head joint cork replacement as standard with every COA that they do. We do, just to remove that variable always. And so you might find there's some organizations like flutistry service professionals that it looks like their price is a little bit higher, but it's because we do all the work. And so at flutistry, whenever you see a COA price, you can see on our website what is included in our COA. It's definitely as much or more than what most other service providers do, but the price is a little bit higher. It's still actually under some, some I guess, what you would consider competitors price-wise, and we do a lot for the service. So you want to find out, you know, what the price is and what's included. So you can price shop, but also what's included. The other thing I would say 
is where people are not traveling a lot during the pandemic and not showing up at shows where someone like me might be with some tools and I can make some adjustments. I know it's a risk and it feels like a risk, but we ship hundreds, thousands of flutes a year. And we rarely have a problem, if ever a problem with the instrument, if it's well-packed. So I think our community in general, where they might feel like they don't have a qualified repair person that they would like to work with within driving distance of them. And since they might not see them at a show or an event, I think everyone should get comfortable with learning how to ship their flutes and do it safely. Anything um, FedEx Express, anything UPS ground or above, do not use the post office to send your flute ever because it's very difficult to track. Um, I'm not dissing the post office, but it's just not the same as being able to track your UPS and FedEx shipments. Having said that, there are services at FedEx and UPS that actually use the same system as the post office. So that's why I'm recommending UPS Ground and above and FedEx Express Saver, FedEx Express Saver. And back to getting your instrument insured, if you work with a company like Anderson, they cover your flute during shipping. So you don't have to take out some crazy uh, you know, $500 insurance bill when you ship your instrument. Don't leave your flute out on any surface, bed, table, counter, railing, floor. Okay, fine. Can help it, Amy. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But then you come back to it and it sits there, beautifully dries it's, it's, out, and then you put it back together again. Oh my gosh. Beyond knowing when to get your instrument repaired and knowing when it needs really needs attention, beyond finding someone that is in a budget that you can afford to invest in getting the instrument repaired, which we've already talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, the rapport with your repair person is really important. Something that I see a lot is that when folks are unhappy, you know, when someone gets a repair back, you know, very often what can happen is they will speak with colleagues or standmates or classmates about, you know, I so-and-so did this repair and I'm really not happy with it and not really ever bring that back to the repair person's attention. And there's various reasons for that. I think a lot of it is that um, flutists generally don't feel comfortable talking technical things. And if you're a good repair person, you're interested you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good flute player. I can play the flute so I can personally tell when I work on an instrument what you are talking about. But there are some folks that are learning. They'll learn from you and they will often try to make it right for you. So it's not just, have you found someone that works within your budget that you trust, that's available and that you can establish a rapport with and that they understand you, but do they do quality work? Do they do the amount of work that you're expecting for the price? Right. Is it quality work? And then can you communicate with them about the quality of the work and how it works for you? There's lots of ways instruments are set up by manufacturers and they're all set up with a certain feel and certain key heights and certain things like that. I think things like spring tension, for example, are, are something that a lot of folks will notice. And so you want to know who your repair person is. And if you, if you have questions or modifications or specific things that you'd like them to look at, that you feel comfortable talking with them about it before the service. And if you have questions about what could be improved or why your flute is different in the following ways, create a dialogue, you know, about that very topic with your repair person. 
that's going to create a stronger bond and it's going to help everyone be clearer the next time around. And not that problems happen very often, but if they do, talking to the folks in, directly involved is a very helpful thing. You know, for me, as much as I love like Amy working with you and I, you know, as an artist, I mean, I'm just like, you know, gaga over the whole thing, but your flute is equally spectacular. And I love to work on instruments that are special instruments, you know, yeah. and you get to know them as you know them as personalities. And it's your job as a repair person to make sure those personalities are thriving in those instruments when you send them back to your, with the end user, whoever that might be. polishing cloths. I know there's a lot out there and they're super hip, but I just want to kind of put it out there. It's such a random thing, right? But the polishing cloths are scratching our flutes, aren't they? It matters. It does matter. And so back way back to the earlier question about some tips for taking care of your instrument, put your instruments away. If you're going to step away for a long time in their cases and close the case and don't leave the case open when the flute is not in it. Because when you see the sun coming through the window and you see a little dust floating in the air, that is settling on your flute when it's just sitting there. It's settling in your flute case. It's setting, settling on your cleaning cloths as well. Oh, and uh, my so, mouth has dropped wide open right now. It's true. People don't think about that, but you can't, don't be leaving your flute out <laughs> if you can help it. Now, that's something because that's something that gets caught up in the oil and then turns into gunk and then turns into sandpaper and, and you know, starts to wear away your instrument. So that's yes, huge. Dear. Closing the case, uh, obviously, when you can, don't leave it open. And the thing that I really want to talk about is drying out your flute. It's very important to dry out the head joint, especially before you put it away. Avoid at all costs those, they're called pad savers or something. And they're like these long fuzzy rods that people put into the body of their flute. Wait, and they store are them they there. flags? No, not flute flags. Flute flags are great. They dry out the flute, but you don't leave the flute flag in the flute when you put okay. the flute away. Why right? would you leave something in your instrument? People do that? People do that. And I don't know, you know, it depends on, on, on your listeners and, and what exposure. Everyone's seen them before. They're like these long fuzzy tubes. There's like a fuzzy tube and it, it kind of looks like it belongs to like a car wash or something. Car like wash, exactly. A big, a big pipe cleaner. Okay. The problem with that is it does absorb the moisture that's in the flute tube and potentially draws it away from the pads. But then you close the case and now it's sitting in there and the moisture is still inside that long swab that's in there, that pad saver, and it's evaporating inside your case. And it's getting into the mechanism, onto the pad surfaces, all of that stuff is just creating a bad situation. So the idea is to put your flute away dry, head joint. Okay. So if you've only played five minutes, it's definitely going to have some condensation in the head joint. So dry that out. Check the body to see if there's any in there. And certainly if you have the time, dry it out. Use a material for your interior cloth that's soft and absorbent. Um, we like to use, we have particular cloths at flutistry.com set. You get a set of two. Um, they're called interior cleaning cloths. We like them because it's kind of a, like a, like a cheesecloth kind of material. I love that. It has that. a lot of surface area around each, each thread of cotton that helps to soak up the, the condensation quickly. Yeah. About the cleaning cloths, at the end of the day, whatever cloth you take to the flute and start to wipe it down with, you're responsible for what happens to the flute. So testing the cloth, definitely double check any, any logos or 
different texture feeling things on the cloth that are different from the rest of the cloth to see, you know, you can test some places to see like if there's any type of, you know, some people might find that their crowns are already a little bit uh, scratched up. You can test on the end of the crown to see if it does any changes the surface at all if it actually polishes it. Generally speaking, dark colored cleaning cloths, and this is not true of every cleaning cloth that's out there, but dark colored dyes and uh, printing materials have charcoal in them in order for them to be dark. Just generally, like if there's a cloth out there that's going to be a little bit more abrasive than others, the darkest colored ones are, can be the ones that are. Um, having said that, there are some dark cloths out there like the, uh, like the Hanes, the big Hanes one, which I think I have this big Hanes one that I have is one of the ones that I use all the time. You know, if you wash the stuff and dry it a couple of times, like it usually softens up really well. Okay. Um, so that's great. But if you have something that's printed or embroidered or, or um, heat pressed into the cloth, that can cause a texture that can scratch your instrument. So, you know, test it out, see if it works. Okay. The last thing we're going to talk about is we used to call it cigarette paper. Uh, the other day, my student handed me a powdery paper. Um, I just remember having that problem. And then I had a lesson with Trudy Kane a long, long time ago, back in New York city. And one day she said, you know, just let that, that little pad sticky sound go and it'll go away. And it's so funny. I rarely have a sticky key now, now that I've just let it go. Although some people religiously are putting paper under their pads. So if I ever have that issue, oh God, I did not say this, but I will just walk up to a side of an envelope and put it under my flute and not slide. I'll put it under the pad and that pad, that, that paper is soaking wet. Once I bring the the key back up and I'm fine. It's like Trudy just blessed me without with no more sticky keys what is that about well i mean it's very fortunate that you're not having sticky key problems um (laughs) they do it's different for everybody because we all know well in the industry we talk about you know clients that have acid hands when the silver tarnishes or you're peeling the plating off really easily sometimes it's not very often it's not the quality of the plating, it's the acidity in the, the excretions of the hand oils from that particular player, which everyone has a different acidity pH balance. Some are more acidic than others. It can change with your diet. It changes like your, um, you know, as, your, as, as different hormones and medications and things happen. Um, and also it changes like your eyesight, like over time as you're growing and cha- your body chemistry is changing. So some people have acid hands, particularly, let's say, uh, in, in middle school and high school, might not have the problem when they're older. But the thing I want to say about sticky keys is uh, if you have acid hands, that, that pH balance acid issue is also um, building up in the condensation inside your flute. And so what's happening is that acidity is inside the condensation. It's down your flute, it's evaporating up and it's coming up and it's resting on the surface of the tone holes and sticking to your pads. Those people that drink sugary drinks or eat sugary food or um, you know don't rinse their mouths out after having something that is ultimately just evaporating, it ends up evaporating on the pads and on the tone hole surfaces. So cigarette paper and 
to your point, I think envelopes are actually a really great, very, very smart on the fly idea. Just obviously with cigarette paper or uh, envelopes, avoid the gummed part, just the, just the paper. The most important thing, certainly with an envelope or a piece of just regular paper or a dollar bill, as many people might use, and I, I don't recommend that at all because no. there's a texture <laughs> for the dollar bill, but people do this. And what they do is they press the key down on top of said piece of whatever and then pull, drag then, it out. Then they slide. And when it's that thick and you slide it, 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 it is like a sandpaper and it can rip and pull at the skin on your pad. So if you have a felt pad that's brand new, it's probably not going to rip right away if you do that a few times. If you have a stronger pad where the skins are a lot tighter, um, there's a lot more pressure on them and they're, you know, the pads in general are thinner. They're like a drum head. And when you drag on that, you could do something to that. Powder paper is actually a really great solution for occasional use. And for those that don't know, powder paper is, it, we call it powder paper. It's made by Yamaha. We sell it. It's like $15.95 for a pack of like 50 will last you forever. What it is, is there's a very fine, it's almost like a baby powder, like a talcum powder. Very, very, very fine, fine, fine powder that's on one side of the paper and it, there's nothing on the other side. You would slide that powder paper if one of your keys, let's say your F-sharp key itself is sticking. Um, and there's two types of stick, everyone. For those of you that want to know, think about right now what those might be. They are sticky pads where the key gets stuck down. The key is sticking down. It will not come up. That is a functional sticking problem which needs to be addressed. Then there's just a sticky noise, right? That's the thing. <laughs> And I, we know that's annoying, but not everyone can hear that in the audience first off, although it is distracting. And, and if you can get rid of it, it's a lovely thing to be able to do. What the powder paper does is when you slide the powder paper under, um, under the key with the powder facing up, if there's something sticky on the surface of the pad, the pad comes down and touches the powder and anything that's sticky on the pad will get covered in powder and presumably have an unsticky surface now, when that part of the pad touches the tone hole, it doesn't stick to the tone hole anymore. It doesn't make that noise anymore, or it doesn't get stuck down. Um, sometimes the sticky part of the pad is actually, the sticky part is on the tone hole surface. So you might, if it's not working on the pad, you might turn it over and touch it onto the tone hole surface. You have to be careful using this stuff a lot though. And in particular, when you do it on the tone hole surface, at the end of the day, that powder is an abrasive. It's right. like loose little pieces of sandpaper grit on your flute. So if you use it all the time, it gets into things and onto things that you don't want to wear away by, by rubbing against these little pieces of powder that will ultimately, could ultimately uh, have an effect on the metal parts of your flute. So use powder paper sparingly. Um, if a key is not moving for some reason, um, if it's exclusively because of the pad is sticking, then try powder paper. And if it's not just because of the pad sticking, um, then you need to call a repair professional and find out why your key is sticking down. With powder paper, you do not ever drag, never drag, because it's like sandpaper, never drag. You can tap, 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 never drag. I'm just gonna do a public service announcement for those of us who really can't stand all the blowing in the, when you get water and then all of a sudden people going, Phew and ruining entire concerts by blowing in the key because there was water. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Sounds. It's a real issue. 
why do people like oboes do have to do it yes yeah like and it's this whole thing i'm like could you just could you just not well i think one of the great tricks for that uh to be avoided that can help be avoided in any situation is if you swab your head joint out frequently during that's what i do that's what i do when i take my swab um at brevard music center you know could be pouring rain and i have this big concert on a friday night you know and and it's just been pouring since 4 p.m and so i have i swab out when there's not an oboe solo or a clarinet or bassoon solo (laughs) when no one's watching i'll just be like an oboist and like calmly flute players rarely do this but you take your instrument apart and you like i'll only put the cleaning rod up halfway just just so that i know it's not rolling down another trick when you're sitting in an orchestra is to not have that flute tilt so that your condensation is rolling to the g sharp key right back any of those closed keys on the back um the g sharp the c sharp trill and the two little trill keys and your thumb yeah if you haven't dried out the head joint it's just slowly building up inside the body and eventually what is more of like a, a, an evaporation and a gaseous form becomes, starts to condensate into droplets inside the body. So if you can dry out the head joint, then you're likely, while condensation will continually build up in the head joint, it won't roll down to the rest of the flute or to the back of the flute. That's a great point, Amy. Let's talk about gold flutes versus other metals it seems to be almost like a voice for people. Younger generations think that it's necessary to have a gold flute, perhaps because they think it's what they need to progress in their career. So, you know, what would you say the trends are now you're seeing in metals and what flutists are going for? And what what is the evolution of the flute uh, and the metal of the flute? Well, that's a great question and so important. I mean, it, it, it's more important now really than ever because of the cost of things and, the, uh, and everyone's various potentially constrained budgets, um, especially in the arts. But I would say that uh, there's a couple things. The thing about materials on the flute is that they are one way to add a particular type of flavor. The metal is a way to add a particular flavor to that dish. Not what it looks like. Of course, it is beautiful. They're beautiful things. It's called the jewel factor. When you look at just, I mean, it just looks like a big piece of jewelry. It's beautiful. You just look so closely at it. It's just such a spectacular piece of art. And I just want to say for the listeners, if I mention various makers, I'm not trying to exclude any other makers. I'm just using examples and, you know, we work with basically all the makers, so I'm not trying to highlight one over the other. I'm not playing favorites. But, you know, back in the day when you would place an order and wait several years for a Haynes or Powell, you know, certainly in Boston, that's what was happening. That was it. And you ordered what you could afford and you got a silver, solid silver flute and the head joints were not, you didn't get a choice of head joints. There weren't head joint cuts. There weren't strobing or pads. There weren't pinless mechanisms. There weren't a lot of things. And so the instruments themselves were different back then. At that time, the concept design, we've all heard from, I'm not saying that there wasn't, there weren't gold flutes and that there weren't platinum flutes even, but they were far less uh, common than they are now. You know, as expensive as it is for the players, and it is very expensive and even more so just recently in the last even few months than um, 
really in the last five years is just like crazy uh, expensive in terms of the price of these instruments. The margins are very slim for the makers and for dealers like us. So like there's not, it's a lot of money for everybody and people aren't making a lot of money, but they are working hard to, to use that money to continue making great instruments and for us to continue to be able to sell them. But with gold in particular, what you had on those old silver flutes is uh, you had like, you know, Amy, you probably knew people that had one of these flutes. It was like a light wall Haynes or a light wall Powell or a light wall Brannon or something, right, from whatever era. Part of that was because at that time, Straubinger pads were not made. And for your listeners, um, you know, the difference between felt pads and Straubinger pads or Straubinger style pads, contemporary pads, whatever you want to call them, is that felt pads are thicker and a little bit squishier, kind of like a plush carpet. Straubinger pads are more like an indoor-outdoor carpet or like a soft vinyl flooring type thing. So it seals better. It's a more reflective surface, but just think about the acoustic in the room. If I have a plush carpet or I have a reflective surface like a flat Straubinger style pad, right? So back in the day when there was only felt pads, and head joints that were not particularly advanced or helpful. They were probably very conservative and, and, uh, and resistant. So what you had was a resistant conservative head joint, felt pads that were just soaking up the sound, not reflecting it. And so in order for the instruments to have any vibrance, they were often made light wall. So over the years, as head joint cuts have improved, instruments are becoming even with felt pads are becoming more and more responsive because the head joint, the head joint technology and the, the industry understanding is so far advanced over what it used to be. Then Straubinger pads were started to be evolved. And I just want everyone to know, and Amy, I know you'll appreciate this as you, you, you probably already know, but David Straubinger is one of the renegades in our industry that we all owe a great debt of gratitude to. He basically, you know, was a repair person working on a lot of felt padded flutes and could not get the felt, the thick, the thick felt to keep its shape for his clients in different situations. And he was bothered by that. And he thought for sure there has to be another way to make a pad that's way more stable. And so he developed over time this much flatter pad, which is basically most of its thickness is a Delrin plastic with a very thin disc of felt inside of the plastic wrapped in a tight, very tight piece of pad skin. Now there's not so much felt that it's absorbing moisture constantly and changing back and forth, right? He's removed as many of the variables as possible. However, if your pad is really super flat, like a Straubinger pad, your tone holes on the flute have to be really, really, really level because if there's any small imperfection in the tone hole surface and there's no squish, no give in the pad. It can't fill in that space, that divot in the tone hole surface. So David Straubinger was a renegade that fought a, a fight for us all where he said, I think there's a more stable pad, but flute makers, y'all are going to have to make your flutes even more level, even more perfect. And he pounded the pavement as an entrepreneur and made that happen. And now all of the American makers that you can think of have Straubinger or Straubinger style pads in them. For the player, what matters is that now custom flutes being made 
going back to our earlier example of the old style flutes with the conservative head joint and the felt pads and a light wall silver flute, flutes today have new head joint styles that are much more responsive and Straubinger pads, which are flat and much more responsive and much more vibrant. And you still have very powerful flutists blowing into these flutes. If you put a new head joint and Straubinger pads on a light wall silver flute, most flutists today are probably going to blow that to pieces. They're going to blow yeah. through it. It's going to break the sound. They're not going to be able to sustain it, right? What we're finding is that those players that can put a lot of air into flutes today need more darkness, more richness, more, more density, more depth, more resistance in the way the instrument feels when they're playing it. And the only way to do that when you have these head joint styles that we all are accustomed to playing and want to play and like to play and pads that are much more stable, but also much more responsive is we need to balance, be able to balance that with the density of the metal. And unfortunately, the most dense metals that are good and stable in flute making are the ones that are most the most expensive. So we are seeing a lot more of that. Things that are changing in the industry um, are Haynes, for example, at the moment is not currently offering fusion out or fusion in flutes anymore in part because the price of gold has, and I'm not speaking for Haynes, but this is just an industry-wide thing. The cost of gold has gone up so much that even just a silver flute from a custom maker right now, so just a, a custom silver flute, which used to be anywhere between 13 and 15,000 is now between 18 and 20. Fusion, the fusion, and this is similar with Powell's Aramite, is a layer of gold, of 14 karat gold, that is either on the outside, it's a layer, it's not plated, it's not clad, it's literally a basically a sheet of gold that is fused with a sheet of silver, 12 thickness of the silver and four thickness of the gold. And the gold is on the outside with the silver on the inside. That's a fusion out or what's called the ruby armite of Powell. The fusion in with Haynes is the gold on the inside of the tube. Same, same math, just on the inside of the tube. And that's the armite flute at Powell. Um, it's called A14 on the inside of the Powell. Um, and I don't know, I have not been paying too close attention. I haven't had a conversation recently about the Armite, so I don't know what Powell is doing, but the cost of these instruments has just gone up so much for the makers first. And they're trying to not put all of the cost on the, on the customers, but everyone has businesses still to run. And the reality is just look at the price of gold right now and you'll see how much it's increased. It's incredible. It's uh, almost twofold. You know, just maybe three years ago, Four years ago, five years ago, we were seeing solid gold flutes for around 45,000. Solid gold is solid, solid gold? gold? Solid gold, like keys and everything, right? 45,000. Now it's between 62 and like 68, maybe. So it is, it's significant. And the thing about flutes, obviously, is that, you know, unlike a car or a house where you can go to lenders and ask for some money, there, there are financing options. We have financing options at Flutus Street, but, it, but there are not quite as many. People are always very astounded that, that our instruments cost so much. I want to play a bit of a game with you. Oh, no. We're okay. going to start talking about trends in the flutes. First of all, we're going to talk about what worked and maybe what didn't work. Are you ready? It's called the split E. What do you think? Does it work or not work? I think it works. Uh, 
definitely makes a difference, but I don't think every flutist needs it. Even think that flutists that have it always need it. Good answer. Um, but it does work. It does okay. make a difference. And you will find that ones without a splitty sometimes have edgy disc, which does the same thing. You just can't see it. And it's a lot what? cheaper. Yep. A In what? the lower G, look inside your, your lower G tone hole and you might see a, a disc in there, don't it? Oh my goodness. Yep. Okay. That's so splitty so fun. Down. Okay. Here's something that when I, I had to put on my flute, my entire life changed, but I thought I didn't need it. Ready? C-sharp trill. Does it, it work or not work? Definitely works. Definitely yes. works. Yep. Works. So I found when I sw- switched makers, the C-sharp trill key is sometimes right next to the lever. And sometimes it's not right next to the lever. Yeah. Placement that the, the placement of that is both very artistic in the way it's designed and hand carved usually uh, the oh. mold is anyway. And, uh, but the, where it's placed is important functionally. Um, I will say about the C-sharp trill, it's a lot more, you know, it adds money. I'm waiting for some makers in, certainly in the U.S. to just make them standard at some point. I, I wonder, I've challenged them all to be the first to do it and no one, no one's done it. Now, there's some that would argue, and there are some, especially some wonderful teachers out there that have, you know, uh, opinions about the C-sharp trill and adding weight to the flute. And I, it definitely does. It adds weight to the flute. But there's so many other weight things on the flute that like, just because there are some brands with a C-sharp trill that are lighter than some other brands that don't even have a C-sharp trill. So, I mean, we're talking about like, it's not the case on every flute that the C-sharp trill is going to cause, you know, for those people that are worried about the hand problems because of weight. Right. And when weight is a thing that you're concerned about with C-sharp trill or any other feature on the flute, Yes, weight matters. The grams matter, but it's also about balance. So depending on how you, you remember you were talking about the C-sharp trill lever being in a, you know, lever being in a different place or close to the A-sharp. Yes. The way the posts come up can be, the geometry is very three-dimensional. So it can come up very high and it can be back on the flute. And that will, you know, as you're holding the flute can cause the flute to feel like it's tilting backwards, whether you're conscious of it or not. And your, your hands are having to keep it oh. forward and that can create tension. So sometimes it's not the weight of the flute. It's sometimes just the balance of it in your hands. And some might work better for you than others. It's a small point, but it's worth mentioning. Okay. The next one, we have a B foot. Why isn't there a B flat foot? Oh, uh, well. It's there are there have been B flat foots out there. In fact, we had a, a vintage Hanes that had high thirty thousands or forty thousand serials serial number that had I think it had a D foot, a C foot, a B foot, and a B flat foot. Okay, um, does it work do or work, not? Uh-huh. They do work, but they will make a lot of your like your middle register on the flute really stuffy. If you've ever switched to a C foot and you feel that the middle register opens up, like a lot of people that have the are privileged to be able to have a C foot option on their flute. We'll play Baroque music, opens up the middle register in a really amazing way. Um, but you can't go down to a low B. If you have a low B flat foot, the air has to travel that much further. And there's a whole bunch of acoustical things that make the key heights and all that stuff become an issue with how open sounding the flute can be in certain registers when you have all that extra weight and that extra distance for the uh, mm-hmm. vibrating column of air to travel. So it does work. They're not popular. I don't think you can order one from any of the American makers with a new flute anymore. I think it's mostly just vintage things you could find. 
All right. The next one I know when I first realized it was in the head joint, I was completely sold. Talk about the riser. The riser itself, what is different about the riser that works is the upgrading of the riser to gold or silver, you know, or platinum or, or platinum. white gold or whatever. Because even though you can't see it, the riser is the place that the air hits first and, and the, the sound is colored a little bit by, you know, a noticeable amount if you're playing the instrument correctly by the material of the riser. So it works. They sure do. Now, what about the wing or Tsubasa? I played on one for 15 years and then I kind of didn't play on one for the rest of my life. So what do you think about wings and for how long should someone stay on it? Probably for as long as they're happy, right? Yeah, I mean, that that's really the thing. Does, does, I, you know, you could put a clarinet mouthpiece on your flute. And if you sound great as a flutist and you're happy with it, keep it on there. <laughs> um, but I hope you wouldn't do that, but you understand the point. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the thing about the wings is that they, they do work. They work, they do what they're intended to do. Right. I think a lot of people look at the wings on a head joint and think it has to do with the shape of the wings on the lip plate itself. But the more important thing about the wings is that it actually adds a millimeter or two of height to the riser. It basically extends the riser up through the lip plate above, and then there's extra space for the head joint cutter to be able to cut. And so now there's a longer channel that's closer to your lips to catch the air and funnel it into the flute. You have a long that's, reed. Yeah, that's the purpose of the wings. Not exactly the same, but similarly, wave style head joints on piccolos do a similar thing. And the general, like they work, but if there's a downside, when people complain about them or feel like they've outgrown them and not everyone does and not that not everyone will or even at the top level will outgrow them like they they can work there's so many ingredients in a recipe of how someone sounds on a flute that um it you know but when someone's unhappy when something goes wrong with wings it's not really working for the player anymore it's usually that it's not as flexible because instead of them making up the distance with how they shape that air as it goes into the flute, it's kind of controlled by the, the longer channel that it's traveling down and the same thing with the wave on a piccolo head joint. So people will say, well, it's not as flexible color-wise. I love the sound, but it's not as flexible. Or they might even say that they love the sound, but one, one of the things we've heard, and this is not on any particular brand, it's just wings in general. If there is a complaint when it comes up, I love the sound. Uh, maybe I love the flexibility, but I can't clean up the articulation. And part of that is because when you articulate, the air is hitting this longer channel and having to travel a little bit longer to get into the flute and start resonating, start making sound. And so no matter how precise you might be with your tongue and how su well supported you are with your airstream, it could be that the length that it's traveling is the sound that you're hearing in the distance between when you're articulating and the, the note actually sounds. So being aware of that is really uh, important that it could potentially limit you. I'm not saying it will, but if you're wondering why can't I clean up my articulation, it could be part of the, it could be an ingredient in the, in the problem. Fascinating. I know that for me, I wanted more 
um, flexibility and the sides and feeling like the air could come out wherever I wanted it. Um, but that's just a, you know, um, I just kind of matured into a new thought process and yeah, leave it to Keith Underwood to change everyone's life in one hour. That's what happened to me. Amen. Right. The last thing, you know, you mentioned about piccolos, are, are they coming down to a low scene? This is there C sharp mechanisms happening. Are is that happening? Oh my gosh! Yeah. So um, what? there's so many. There's some really great innovations with piccolos. Yeah, and piccolos um, surprisingly during the pandemic have been almost the hardest item for us to keep in stock at every level. Flutists, and I think in part we owe a great deal to um, Erica Peel um, and her wonderful, you know, leadership as an artist of the piccolo. Um, a lot of us got to hear it NFA online um, this summer. There's a lot of musical chairs going on right now in uh, orchestras and ensembles around the country, both on the regional and the national and international levels. Um, and so people are looking to, to you know, maybe people aren't able to invest in a flute right now because they're not so sure what's going to happen, but they are getting offered to do piccolo gigs and they need a good piccolo. With the innovations on piccolo, though, you're going to find there's a piccolo maker in Europe Brown, B-R-A-U-N, um, that there are some devotees, very few in the United States, um, but certainly in Europe, they're very popular. Uh, Michelle Hazel in the Berlin Philharmonic uh, plays uh, a brown flute, a wooden brown flute, and the piccolo player in the orchestra plays, the, I think, the very first brown piccolo that was ever made. They're unique, not for everybody. They're special instruments. They go down to a low C. There's a particular acoustic that allows that to happen. The Nagahara, actually, they don't, we're a Nagahara dealer. We love Nagahara. They, they're a very innovative company. They make what's called the mini. Their concept is that it's a mini flute. So the way that the scale is designed and the interior of the bore is supposed to be like a mini flute as opposed to a piccolo. And there's been mixed responses from the, the buying community about it, not because it's not a great instrument, but because you do tend to need to play it a little bit differently to get it to play in tune and resonate the way you want than you would all the normal piccolos that you're just picking up and being able to play. But they are special and unique, not for everyone and not really needed. It's interesting, but it's not really needed for everybody. And then there are some uh, multi-trill, omni-trill options at some of the different piccolo makers, um, Burkhardt, Keefe, and we're really proud to be the exclusive distributor and partner with Adam Petri and the revolutionary Petri Piccolos that are come, that are out now. We have a growing list of signups for trials of those Piccolos. They're custom Piccolos that have all sorts of wonderful features. The Brassa F-sharp, which is really great on the Piccolo. For those of you that that know don't know what a Brassa F-sharp is, it's, it's like a little key that's set, a little tiny touch button that's set over near the, I think it's near the D key on his, But normally when we play F sharp on our flutes and piccolos, we use our right hand ring finger, which is actually pressing the D key. That's the D key that it's pressing. And through the system of pins and and back connections, it presses down the F sharp key further up the piccolo. But on piccolo, the piccolo is so small that the, and the key heights are relatively low and the tone holes are small that the air we're putting into them can't vent quickly enough out the open F hole and E hole. And sometimes the F sharp can be a little bit closed because it only has those two holes to vent before it gets to your finger covering the D hole. And so it can be a little bit stuffy. The Brassa F sharp is a little button you can press that actually just closes the F sharp and leaves the D key open. So it helps the scale, helps the evenness and it opens up the sound. 
the open C, the open hole C, the multi trill and the C sharp trill, the omni trill is also C sharp trill and has different trill functions on the Petri Piccolo. So there are some cool innovations. If you have a $6,500, $7,000 budget and above, you have some really great choices for Piccolo. You have great choices in, in the 1000 to, I would say, $3,500 range. And then between like four and six, there's, there's three categories really of Piccolos. You have great choices in all those categories, but you're going to get way more of those options, on the, obviously, on the more expensive instruments. Well, you've already said that you wished a flute company would just put that C-sharp drill key on as a given. What are some of the other ideas that you wish the companies would come up with and why? Oh, wow. I don't know if I'm even, if I should, if I should even be saying some of those ideas out publicly. Um, But I do have some things that I would say. I think there's been some great explorations with flute cases. I was just going to say that. I don't because think those, that those parts move in the case otherwise. They do. I think flute, the flute case matters. I think there are some great cases. and I think some cases are better for different flutes constructed different ways than others. Right. Um, I don't think we're there yet. I don't have a favorite. I think some of the ones that are really secure are not particularly pretty because, you know, a traditional French case, when you open it up and you have the beautiful flute in there, is just a, a stellar experience every time you take it out to practice. It's special. It is some tradition in it. Um, and not that the other cases aren't beautiful, but, you know, we're type A flute people normally, and we like our things to, to look nice and to feel good and be secure for our instruments. So I also think case exploration is something that I think makers could do a little bit more with. The argument could go either way about making C-sharp trill standard. Um, Same thing with inline or offset. The hard part for dealers and makers with C-sharp trills and offset being choices uh, of the buyer is that they're hardwired. They are baked into the instrument. There's nothing you can do unless you are an extremely skilled flute maker that's willing to do it to add or remove well, you can't remove, but obviously to add a C-sharp trill um, or to move an inline G to an offset G, each serial number is either going to have a C-sharp trill or not. Each serial number is either going to be inline G or offset G. There is no option after it's made. The problem with that is we might have the gold flute that you sound amazing on, but it has a C-sharp trill and you don't want one or it doesn't have a C-sharp trill and you want one, or it's offset G and you want inline. The problem with that is that costs everybody more money because you now want the inline version. And, and, and we, we certainly want you to have what you want, but when we talk about the price of instruments going up, this is one of the reasons. Because presumably makers will have to inventory and dealers like us would have to have on hand an inline version and an offset version, one with C-sharp, one without. So for every one person that wants to play a gold, Haynes flute, we might have to carry, that's a $65,000 flute. We might have to carry four of them, four versions at the cost of what? That's like, you know, 
$300,000 almost, right? That's crazy money. So when you have to carry, now we don't all carry those, obviously we make very educated decisions based on spec about what we're gonna do when we order instruments. And they can certainly be made to spec, but it takes a little bit of time to do that. But presumably if we did have two, let's say I have one in with the C-sharp and one without a C-sharp. Now I have, I've either paid cash or I've, I've borrowed money to pay for that instrument until someone buys it. I'm paying interest on that money or I'm not getting earning interest on the money that I've spent on it until someone buys that flute. And so those expenses are the type of expenses that makers and dealers take into account. Uh, maker Dealers, excuse me, we don't set the prices for the entrance, the makers do. That's good but, to know. Um, yeah, we don't set the prices the makers do. And that's why you'll basically see, and we're contractually bound to stick to that pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that uh, you'll see happen. This is actually the thing that I, I would like to say most to, to the listeners is um, a lot of the innovations on flutes are, are and I'm not saying there aren't wonderfully innovative, innovative uh, makers out there. There are so many great makers, but a lot of the major innovations, scale, key uh, mechanisms, excuse me, pinless or pinned flutes, pad types, head joint cuts, materials, a lot of those innovations are, are now done. They're, they're baked into the way we make flutes now. And the next innovations that are coming, I think really are from, flute players that understand more about the making and repair of an instrument so they can give actual material feedback to a maker. Um, not just like, I like it, play, I like it, I don't like it type thing. And also for makers to continue to employ talented flute players so that they have people on their team that can play their instruments and understand how they should feel, how they should sound. Everybody wins when the maker's instruments come off the production line playing, sounding, and feeling the way they should feel for that brand. It's very important. I am a very big fan of playing the flute without a lot of gear or accessories attached to it. I believe that the flute company came out with something that I have to go find my personal sound. And so for 20 years, I've had the anatomy of sound because I've really realized that I can get anyone to access themselves if they let me, <laughs> if they let yep. me just teach them instead of, you know, these it. accessories. And, and you can think of all, all of the things that you can attach to a flute, right? First off, are they innovative? Absolutely. Are they interesting? Absolutely. And why are they interesting? Because whatever you do to a flute, when you change the type of material, the amount of said material or the weight and way in which it resonates. If you change that in any way, the instrument will feel different and you will sound different as a result of that. So do they make a difference? Absolutely. You cannot add something to the flute, like put something on the flute and expect it to play the same way. It's just not going to, right? Right. And that's one of the things that we spent a lot of time really paying attention to is how do all these different ingredients work together to create different recipes? I agree with you, Amy, the makers mostly always know what they're doing and they have an intended you know, purpose and concept of sound and feel and all of that. That does not mean that every player of those brands is able to access easily in a way that's comfortable for them, even after learning it, the things that that instrument might be able to do for them. And there are some things, small things that 
players can do to experiment adding to the flute to see if it changes their current instrument at all, it will definitely change it. That does not mean that it's a better change. It might be a worse change. But if you do find that you love something, to your point, Amy, if you find something that you love, that you've added something to your flute and you absolutely love it, it's worth asking yourself, you know, at some point in the future, because what I see a lot is people will, will take on some new gadget with their flute and that works for them for a couple of years, up to a couple of years. And then eventually we see them looking for an instrument because when you are experiencing a positive change with an external thing like that, it's usually because you are trying to bring the instrument up to the level of how your skill has evolved, right? To the same level. And sometimes these instruments, the, the, the combination of material and brand concepts of sound and all of that stuff is not, the, not going to meet your level of artistry as you've improved and evolved, evolved over time. So the real message with responding positively to an external change like that to your flute is that maybe you're outgrowing your flute. Right. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, we, we make, we do not make it a habit of telling our customers that have just bought an expensive flute for them, whatever price it might be. The truth of it is, you know, we don't say, guess what? After you just spent $20,000, you're going to be buying another flute in five years. But the truth of it is, if you continue to evolve on that $20,000 flute with your artistic goals and your ability, you might well be looking at another flute in five years. And we do see that type of thing because your playing is evolving as is your match with your equipment. That's right. And has anybody tried, you know, uh, lowering the flute on the chin or raising the flute on the lip or pulling to the right a little bit or arranging your head or your feet in a different way? So many people just don't turn inward for their solutions. And that's why I love participating, um, you know, on the team at Anatomy of Sound. It's been a Truly, like it, it literally is like, you know, when we first met each other, Amy, like it was like, oh, okay, we're thick as thieves. Like, this is great. We're going to be, we're just going to have a great time, right? Um, I feel that way artistically and creatively and philosophically when I'm at Anatomy of Sound with you and your wonderful, wonderful team. Oh, um, because well, thank you for joining us. What you do is you're helping players understand all of the levers that they can pull. Yes. All of the levers that they can pull to improve and to evolve and to grow. And between, you know, what you're doing artistically, musically, your understanding of, of course, the, the you know, Jerry Schweibert's incredible influence over the years and Laura Dwyer's body work, um, an understanding of, of, of how, how, you know, getting the players to actually move and for them to feel their bodies in a different way to, you know, Dr. Erica Boyson talking about vibrato and the anatomy of vibrato, how it actually works. And, and Dr. David Brown talking about the anatomy of the body and how the support actually physically works. It prevents injury because when you're really supporting your whole setup out of your core, all the tension start, you know, so much tension starts to go away. It's not, not always the cure, but it very often is the cure. Exactly. And, and, uh, and for what we do there, you know, we're talking about the anatomy of a match. That's an exclusive workshop that we have just for anatomy of sound, where we talk about what is the anatomy on the player side and on the, the instrument side that make a match 
whether it's a good match or a bad match, what are the influences and what order of priority that make a difference? You know, someone we hear all the time, people will come up to the table or whatever and say, I don't like gold flutes or I don't like silver flutes or I don't like platinum or I don't like this shaped tone hole or I only like wings or I only like a wave hedging or the list goes on and on what people say. And I'm not trying to be insulting and say that they're wrong at all. What I am saying is sometimes the reason that we think something is not for us is probably very often not the reason, even though it's the thing that we've assigned it to. It might be an influence, it might be a part of the reason, but it may not be the only reason, right? It might be that you don't like a gold flute of that particular brand. Correct. Because why? You play a silver flute normally, you're not used to blowing into gold, and that particular brand, that's the most resistant, conservative, dark sounding gold flute on the market. So of course you don't like it. But if I point you to a gold flute from this brand over here, that's a lot more responsive and drives a lot more similarly to your silver flute, you might end up loving a gold flute. Yeah. And why does that matter? Just to say you're right or wrong to the client? No. Why it matters is I don't want you to say no to an instrument that can help you win that audition, that job, that spot at a college or conservatory, that concerto competition, that scholarship, that grant, that recording project, whatever it is you might be doing. I think that flutists are so educated so many times about so many things and then say some what to someone like me thinks it's like an awfully silly way to describe something compared to all the other depth of knowledge that flute players have. Um, and I'm really, and, and, and I think it's unfortunate because someone who might be looking for a flute with friends and says, oh, I don't like gold, right? Their friends take that and they don't like gold either. Or I don't like silver and their friends hear that and their friends now don't like silver or don't think that they're gonna like silver. So it's important for us to be talking about this. And yet again, Amy, here you are, once again, being a pioneer as you are and inviting uh, me to, to talk about that anatomy of that match and the factors that actually matter and what order of priorities so that your flutists, your attendees, your participants in this class every year, which are always wonderful, walk away with some little bit more information about that so they have some understanding. Well, thank you. We have given everyone a million dollar podcast today with you as our guest. This is such great content and great opener for season four. Thank you, Adam Workman. What an honor. You rock. Thank you. This is amazing. Honestly, like I'm, I'm just absolutely starry eyed. Thank you so much for having me. And this is really fun. Thank you for staying with us all the way to the end of this important episode. Visit flutistry.com, that's F-L-U-T-I-S-T-R-Y.com, if you'd like Adam to match you with a flute. Join us for our next episode of Porter Flute Pod, where I speak about a very, very important aspect of my life, pets. Pets and playing the flute and the piccolo. I'm bringing in my favorite equestrian from Instagram, and I'm asking for some stories from my friends and producers. It's a subject dear to my heart, and if you know me, you know I send my friends way too many Instagram dog reels. <laughs> you can find me as Porter Flute on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and my websites are amyporter.com and porterflute.com. Thanks for being here. I'm so grateful for you.